Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining the Managed Care podcast, which is produced by the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm your host, Mandy Bishop, the CEO and co-founder of Aloha Health, and today I am incredibly honored to be joined by Andy Slavin, the Acting Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who's also the very embodiment of open government and transparency with his avid engagement in informative, earnest, and honestly, really hilarious tweeting. He brought more than 20 years of healthcare industry experience into his roles with CMS, including laudable stops as the CEO of Optum Insight and the founder and CEO of Health Allies, an organization whose mission to address the needs of the underserved seems to bring us full circle to today. Andy, thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Excellent. I'd really love to learn more about what drove you in those early days to found Health Allies and how that brought you on your journey to now. You know, I think so many of us who work in healthcare are there uh, because of some personal experience. For me, uh, I started Health Allies after losing uh, one of my best friends to cancer. He had been as my roommate from college uh, who had recently been married and had twin one-year-old kids when he developed a brain tumor. And his wife at the time, uh, which soon became his widow, came and lived with my, my brand-new wife and I and brought their twins with them. And one of the things that we set out to help them with was how to navigate a incredibly complex healthcare system that can make you feel pretty alone and pretty vulnerable. And her husband had racked up tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills. I'm sure. And we built a company, uh, Health Allies, really around the notion of trying to give people access to uh, affordable care that uh, when they get care themselves, when they're uninsured or underinsured, um, so that they can not have to worry and not have to go bankrupt and so forth. And so in many respects, you know, it's a journey that uh, launches, I think, uh, so much of the conversation we have today about giving people better access to care. Excellent. Yes. And I know that you are working incredibly hard you know, going into this transition period. I'm sure you're very busy. I know that I've pulled you away from a number of initiatives that you're working on just to speak with us today. And on top of that, you just wrapped up the quality conference. You know, in this journey towards helping people become healthier and helping drive health, you know, healthcare system delivery reform, helping drive quality initiatives that are reflecting that early mission of, of giving people access to care and helping them understand the payment opportunities for them. You know, you just keep cranking out the hits at CMS and you're doing it right up until the very last day. And, and I'm so excited. I, I want to talk about some of the initiatives that you've recently announced and that are upcoming and, and starting with the new consumer-facing compare tools that were just added to the hospital compare website, which give patients transparency into an institution's star quality rating. What's new with the tools and how do you envision those things being used most effectively when people are trying to make decisions about their care? So it's interesting. When I took the job as CMS uh, administrator, one of the very visible parts of the job is all the policy work. What do we, what do, we do about the future of the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, certainly the ACA. I think one of my first insights here was, while there is a, certainly a policy component to this job, it's really a service job. Uh, and day-to-day service to 140 million Americans, 
um, is really what unites the work we do. And so anytime we have to uh, think about a policy, um, we try to make it a point, and we've tried to make it a point, to ask how is this going to affect the patient and how is this going to help the patient uh, and their family get into a better place and make a better decision. So a few years ago, we when we started on this uh, path, we really um, said it's not just about the policy, but it's how we bring the policies to the kitchen table of the American family. When you're when you're trying to figure out after a very hard conversation which line to, to uh, put your mother in, what questions do you even ask? How do you even know uh, which one's better, which one's worse? So I think the team, uh, which has all kinds of data and all kinds of connection points, really pushed themselves to go a step further than just saying. We're going to make great term, great policies about, say, long-term care, but we're going to build tools for, for people. We're going to take the information that we have about what people are doing and say, hey, wait a minute, taxpayers are paying for all these services. We've got to make this information public. We've got to do it in useful ways. And that's what this recent announcement was about. Excellent. And, and in designing these tools and thinking, you, know, you mentioned, how do you bring the policy to the kitchen table? And that just resonated with me. Do you reach out? Are there patients and there are pe- you know, people who are chronically ill who are involved in helping shape these tools and helping design kind of the policy and process implementations? Boy, do I love that question. <laughs> uh, the, a very common response to, Andy, what do you think about this is, well, what do patients think? If we ask any patients uh, or what do, what, do, what do physicians think? If we ask them, and so we, we coined a phrase here called user-driven policy design, which is about as wonky and geeky a consulting sounding <laughs> a phrase as you can find. Uh, but, but it's a thing for people to rally around. And when the team does its work, now I think the team actually has to come with that very knowledge. And I'll tell you a trick of Washington, and it's probably no surprise to you, is it's not hard to understand what the lobbyists think. They write us letters, they come visit us, uh, they advocate for their point of view. And if you stopped there and didn't ask any further questions, you know, you would certainly have one side of the story pretty well sorted out. But what we say in user-driven policy design is you need a 360-degree view. So if you're going to make a policy about, say, long-term care, you want to find out what, what do nurses think? What do the facilities think? What do the patients think? What do the families think? And we've set up some pretty good formal structures. They can always get better. But we have councils that we meet with on a regular basis of patients who tell us things that they like and things that they don't like. And as painful as it is, if you can build a culture where people are willing to hear bad news and willing to hear complaints, and you can build enough external communication so that people know you're working on these things, you're listening to them, you're making adjustments, and you're improving, you actually find you can get a lot more done. I think that that is building a culture of people willing to hear bad news and listen to complaints. So that there have been a, several things now that you have said that I've just made notes. These are these are going to be enduring Andyisms that I bring with me long into the future. Bringing policy to the kitchen table, and building a culture of people willing to hear bad news. And on the culture of people willing to hear bad news, on the flip side of these transparency initiatives that you're building, there's a lot of pushback from industry groups on the transparency initiatives. Right? They don't feel like the quality measures reflect the complexity of the healthcare delivery system. They don't feel like uh, the social and complex needs that affect a hospital performance, for example, you know, that those, those things are not included in ranking algorithms. How do you overcome and address those challenges as part of this 360 degree view? 
first of all, it's to understand that every one of them is a valid criticism, right? Because from wherever you sit in the healthcare system, um, you've got a point of view. And um, we have to start by acknowledging that there's no one perfect right answer. There's an amalgam of perspectives, uh, which you've got to keep trying to build a sort of a collaborative consensus. And that's a process. It's not an answer. So if you approach it as if it's an answer and rigidly defend it, which I think this organization has probably done from time to time, um, you know, you end up in these uh, face-offs. If instead you say, what's our goal? So let's take the example that, that you raised, Mandy, which is a great one. What's, what's the answer to making sure that we appropriately account for people's uh, socioeconomic status when we evaluate how well a uh, hospital is performing? And so the first place we started is, well, what are the right principles to, that, that are right for the patient? And there's, there's two that I think uh, we think are important. Um, one of which is we don't want to create a two-tiered system. In other words, we don't want to say, you want to prevent people from coming back from surgery uh, after 30 days. But if they're poor, it's okay. It's okay because we, can let, we should let the hospital off the hook uh, for people that don't have as many resources. That's the wrong answer. And I think um, we should resist efforts to say that it's okay not to care of others. But at the same time, the second principle is acknowledging that it takes more resources. If you're going to take care of people who don't have um, food security, who don't have um, you know, housing security, who can't miss work very often, then we ought to be willing to say, let's invest in that. So let's take the star ratings, for example, that we do in uh, Medicare Advantage, and we actually increase the, the, the payments for, for people who take care of a higher percentage of those populations because what we really want, what behavior do we really want is we really want hospitals and physicians to say, give me more difficult to treat patients. I want to tackle those as opposed to give me less. So I think, you know, maybe for us, it's for me, it's a matter of deciding on what your principles are, being very public about what those principles are, being willing to be debated about those principles. But once you get people to agree to those principles, then you're really just arguing over how do you implement and how do you improve. And I think those are places where we should live and breathe. I think you're right. And I, I harking back to the, the two-tiered system and the role that things like socioeconomics play brings me to kind of the next elephant in the room, right? The changing White House administration and the substantive changes that we anticipate happening to things like Medicaid, right? As, I get your pun on, I get your pun on elephant. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad that somebody caught that. I've been thinking about that all day. It took me all day to, to dream that one up. You know, but, so, so thinking about, thinking about not wanting to create a two-tiered system and wanting to, you know, understanding that it takes more resources to care for those who are high risk and difficult to treat and who as a patient population have fewer resources themselves, you know, how, what, what are you, what do you anticipate that the new administration, how are they going to address these challenges? Well, look, it would be wrong for me to try to speak for them. Sure. Um, and so uh, I, I won't do that. I will say a couple of things. One is when you're in these roles, my role, um, the secretary's role, you quickly realize you work for the American public. And you have a lot of different things to balance than you may have when you're, say, either campaigning uh, or when you're in another role and you're thinking about those jobs. So I think 
we ought to uh, all have uh, have the attitude that we should give uh, the new team the opportunity to kind of put together their vision, but also to understand that, that they work for us. They will work for us, just like I work for you all now. And that means that they will need to hear what's important uh, to us and what the challenges and the priorities are. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's tempting to try to prejudge uh, kind of what happens next. I think it probably won't be as simple uh, as we think it may lay out to be. I think I, I, I definitely hope that the understanding and the grounding of the responsibility to the American people holds true. And I, I, I firmly believe that that, that that will happen. And I think maybe that realization uh, just has not quite sunk in or isn't being conveyed appropriately to, to those of us who are very interested and very concerned kind of in the general public. But it brings me also to one of your greatest, one of the greatest things that has happened in, in your tenure, I think, is the passing of MACRA, right? And thinking about something that will, that is sustainable and that we know will continue. Um, you know, it, it's my understanding that it will, that it will continue, that MACRA will stand. There's some contention about the pace at which the MACRA payment reform is going to be adopted, right? Or is going to be enforced. And I'm wondering, you know, what delivery system initiatives CMS is rolling out that may or may not be caught in that crossfire. So let's talk a little bit about MACRA. You know, MACRA really is, uh, in many ways, positioned to be the beginning of the next stage of the Medicare program. And by extension, because it's the Medicare program, uh, it impacts more than just the Medicare program. It impacts the practice of medicine and patient care and and it and it's intended to extend beyond commercial care. So if the if if someone's view of MACRA is it's a highly rigid scorekeeping system that's intended to get physicians to quote unquote teach to the test and we have to design perfect tests and perfect scorekeeping systems, uh, it will fail, I believe, and fail badly. And I think it's a vision it's going to be, be really hard to get either patients or physicians particularly excited about. And so I don't think that's the intent. I think that's often how people think about it. I think it's often how uh, elements of it are um, understood to be implemented. Um, and probably because, you know, past performance is a pretty decent predictor of future performance. That's kind of how many programs have been implemented. But this has got to be a little bit different. And if, if we look at this instead as an opportunity to um, get out of the way of the patient-physician relationship, give physicians and clinicians back more time by reducing uh, the burden as they're measured, by using it as an opportunity to create custom and sort of bespoke models that reimburse the way physicians think they ought to be reimbursed. Remember, today, physician uh, would say that in order to get paid by CMS, they have to code it in order to get paid for it. Right. So they, you can't code for things like conversations. You can't code for things like consultations. You can't code for things like uh, telling a 31-year-old young mother uh, that she's got uh, late-stage cancer and you've got to help her think through her options. You got you only get coded for delivering the medicine or, or conducting the test or doing the surgery. Right. And so the opportunity is to say, we can create many, many models uh, which is what the uh, CMS Innovation Center does. I think they've created 40 models in the last number of years. Uh, and, and create models that are appropriate for 
with the different types of practice by, and, and creating is really the wrong word, Mandy. It's really listening to what physicians say works for them, test a model that they can use and then, and then get, uh, get paid for. So if you have that vision, it becomes, and, and you can make that successful. And believe me, it's a harder vision to execute. It takes a lot more interaction and communication and care and feeding. Um, then I think we have a, a Medicare program and a healthcare system that will make real progress. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's true. And I think the real progress, we're, we're seeing it happening in, incrementally. And there's certainly an appetite to revisit and reestablish that patient-physician relationship that, you know, healthcare was founded on, right? So the healthcare system grew from that, that need to have that relationship and for physicians to be able to understand their patients and to form kind of meaningful engagements with them. And in thinking about how this relates back to, from a macro standpoint, as well as from a Medicaid standpoint, an announcement that was just made today about the new Medicare Medicaid ACO program and being able to create these accountable care organizations and that, that relationship to make the patients and physicians um, kind of at all ends of the spectrum encompassing both you know, dual eligibility, like both, both ends of the reimbursement uh, mechanisms accountable for physicians and allowing them to, to have more control and better access. How do you see that playing into this type of reestablishment and reinforcement of the relationship between physicians and, and patients? Well, well, even in describing that, you said the magic word two or three times in my mind, and that magic word is relationship. Yep. Um, if, if you can give back uh, patients and particularly you talk about dual eligible patients, people who are uh, the most challenging uh, in many respects because their life circumstances can be the most challenging. Uh, they may be disabled, are living with a disability. They uh, may have, uh, certainly are living on low incomes or fixed incomes. Um, and if they show up in the healthcare system without a relationship, every time it's a transactional event, things tend not to go as well. But through some sort of affiliation, and look, well, this is an ACO. This isn't meant to be an homage to ACOs per se. Right. It's meant to be an homage to vehicles which allow teams of people to build relationships with patients and get to know them better over time so that um, they can, they can uh, know when a patient just isn't filling their medication because they just aren't going to have the copayment this month. Uh, and they know that. And they know that because they have um, built a relationship over time and they know when um, they need to get the behavioral health uh, specialist involved. Uh, you can't do that if every time you see someone, it's the first time you've ever met them and you're starting over. Patients don't like that. The physicians don't like that. The institutions don't like that because they, they, lose, they lose customers that way. Absolutely. So what to do about it? This, this is not the hardest problem in the world we've ever had to solve. Um, we've solved problems way more complicated than this all the time. So setting up these kinds of structures, investing in them, people will do the right thing. What do you see as kind of the market opportunity going forward? So, you know, commercial ACOs uh, are, are meeting varying degrees of success. And, and one of the challenges that they are currently having is if they're already high performing when they start, then it is difficult for them to, you know, to continue growth and, and to continue financial viability, I, I guess is a good way. But thinking about these, you know, 
the programs, the you know, expansion of managed care programs, the expansion of this, this new Medicare, Medicaid, ACO kind of driving the way for commercial industry adoption, how do you see market-driven accountable care innovation evolving? So it's really the right question, and I think I know what you mean by market-driven, but if I'm off, I'm off the mark, uh, please pull me back on this. Sure. But the my experience has been that there is absolutely nothing that a commercial payer or CMS could do which changes the capabilities of a healthcare community to provide better care unless unless it's already supporting cultural clinical leadership that is that knows what it wants to do and is just basically waiting for the support and the resources. You know, Mandy, it has been a couple of times in my tenure when I've had the most puzzling conversations. I've literally <laughs> walked into meetings with hospital CEOs who've told me, if you don't adjust the benchmark formula on ACO X, Y, and Z by X, Y, and Z percent, and so on and so forth, we're, we're going to stop. We're going to stop being an ACO. And I've said to them, that's great. That's nice to hear. Uh, but I had no idea that I was running your business. And I had no idea your CFO was running your hospital. <laughs> um, it's not supposed to work that way. They either have a cultural vision and, or they don't. Uh, there's nothing that I can do and there's nothing that I'm going to do to make that any different. Like Montefiore, they have the vision of driving cultural team-based care into their organization. And whether or not CMS uh, reimbursed them properly or not, they would probably be doing the right things. Uh, there's other institutions, if they're waiting for CMS, then all they're really doing is looking for ways to get paid more. Um, they're not really driving culturally based kind of team-based care. And so what our job is to do is to say, we will follow you. You do the right things. You find the things that work. You keep people healthier. You show us the data. Our job is to find a ways to reward you for that, to give you more resources for that. But if you're waiting for us and then you're going to change your care model, I don't think either one of us is going to be successful. Right. And that, that speaks back to the heart of what you talked about for MACRA, right? That you see that as a, as a framework and it develops an opportunity for innovation and an opportunity to, to reestablish and reimagine how you could best further that relationship between patients and clinicians. So I think what you just said is as, as the ACO partners come to CMS with opportunities, concrete opportunities for how to adjust models appropriately um, and can have an evidence-based approach to why these things matter, why these external metrics matter and how it makes a difference in the lives of their clinicians, the lives of their patients, the lives of their communities, that those evidence-based approaches to gathering new potential payment models, new opportunities, that those things would be considered going forward. You know, I traveled around the country a lot this year, meeting with uh, different physician organizations, clinical organizations, and really interesting. Uh, one day I met in the morning with a really sophisticated, well-known integrated delivery system. And they had about 18 people around the table, including I think four of them had the title PQRS analyst. Um, <laughs> Right. So these were people who literally tried to figure out how, whether it was commercial payers or CMS's quality programs worked and right. backward engineer how to get the right financial result and get paid for it, et cetera. Right. And, and of course, they were instilling quality in the organization at the same time. That afternoon, I met with 
a physician practice. It was literally two people. I think it was a, a physician and her husband who worked in the front office. So what, what the, the image that I was trying to create for you is what MACRA uh, is essentially got to do is it's got to be designed for that second meeting. Right. Um, we have, we have uh, institutions that think about and attend conferences every year and join organizations, ACOs, and about quality. Uh, they, they raise their hand to be either an MSSP or a pioneer or a next gen. Uh, they want to be on the cusp of medicine. They have the capabilities. They've hired a lot of resources. But that's a very small part of, of the market for healthcare delivery. You've got another huge part of the bell curve, if you will. Right. And in the middle of that bell curve, we want to get people uh, to have a much uh, simpler interactive experience. So I think it's even more important that we not lose the middle of the bell curve. If we do, then I think you'll have small practices that just um, decide to give up. Uh, and we can't do that because um, this is, there's a lot of reasons we can't do it. We can't do it economically. We can't do it uh, because it's just physically impossible to reach all the parts of the country that where we need to take care of people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're right. And, and as you were talking, I had a vision in my mind of the quote unquote, the flyover states, right? So there's so much attention and focus on the kind of academic medical institutions and on the large integrated delivery networks. And there's, there's a lot of resources that are spent there, certainly a lot of lobbying power, but there is, to your point, this whole other middle of the bell curve, and then even kind of the lower quadrant of the bell curve where there's not nearly as much focus, but yet tremendous opportunity, both for innovation as well as to do good, to do good within the community, to do good for the patients, and then to have learning experiences for clinicians that could be leveraged much more broadly across the healthcare system. And, and I think that that experience brings us to my last point, the last conversation that I want to have with you to close this out. I, I want to bring it back to the patients and the patient experience and how everything that you've done at CMS and how everything that, that you believe uh, all of the, the programs that you're putting in place and your belief in, in continuing innovate, innovation, the opportunities for not just payment reform, but delivery system reform, what impact to the patients, you know, what, what impact to the patients do you see? And do you think that we as a healthcare system, you know, as a healthcare industry, what responsibility should we take on and as part of our accountable care structure to educate the patients under our care about the impact to themselves, to those patients, both financial and, and otherwise, about the changes that are happening. So as we move into what we think are new models of care, it's critical that we not only educate patients along the way, but that we allow patients to educate us about what they want. And I think that's going to be essential for us not to end up in a situation like we did a couple decades ago with HMOs where everybody felt like they found a wonderful solution and only uh, patients felt like they were the victims of that solution, not the, not the center of it. So that means asking patients questions about what they want and uh, really explaining to them the, the vision for how we're putting together, putting these things together. I'll give you a quick example. You know, if you're uh, putting together an ACO you know, in Southern Arizona, uh, we call it the Southern Arizona um, Care Network, uh, does, what does a participant in that network feel like? Do they understand from their physician 
that they can get a lot of the things that are really valuable to them. So it doesn't necessarily feel like they're losing a bigger network, but they have a physician tell them, hey, if you participate here, I'll always know when you use the healthcare system. If you get, if you have to go to the hospital, they'll alert me. Uh, I know all the, I know all the specialists. So everyone I refer you to is somebody that I know is good. And um, can you talk about that in ways that patients care about? And I think patients care about some really simple things. They want to build a relationship with the healthcare system. They want to feel like everything that happens to them is connected to the things that happened to them in the past. And mostly, they want to get home or in some other comfortable setting so they can live their lives. And if they feel like they've got a relationship with someone who appreciates that, then you've got a much stronger foundation to build care delivery on than I think uh, where it just all feels like a financial model on a piece of paper. Absolutely. I think that's so important, just bringing it back to the human element of healthcare, right? The healthcare industry exists to serve patients. And so I think it's important for us going forward to always keep that in mind and to find new ways every day to make sure that, that we incorporate that principle into uh, all of our doings and all of our business dealings and all of our understanding about the models and the impact that what we are as an industry are doing is having on people and families and communities. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today, Andy. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Mandy, I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us here on the Managed Care podcast produced by the American Journal of Managed Care.